Welcome to Bound the Context. I'm your host, Ryan Schreiber. With me today is Miriam Friedel, Dr. Miriam Friedel, uh, Director of Software Engineering at Capital One. Welcome to the program, Miriam. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. So how did, a doctor, how did a doctor end up in a closet? Um, in a closet. I can know. You, can I should... you give us the background with a unicorn, a shiny unicorn sweatshirt. I no, know. No. Yes. I wore this like just to get myself a little bit amped up for this, nice. this interview, my sparkly unicorn sweatshirt. Um, I'm sitting in this closet because it is one of the quietest places in my house, my bedroom closet, uh, filled with dresses I no longer wear because we're in a pandemic. So you, you can see what I'm wearing. And I have two daughters, uh, Kira and Kate. Kira is 12 and she's in the seventh grade and Kate is 10. She's in the fifth grade and they're doing school downstairs and Kate has gym class. It's going to start shortly. So uh, I wanted to sort of separate myself from that. And so here I am in my closet. Smart move. Well, you happen to be the both, I think, the first doctor guest and the first uh, shiny unicorn sweatshirt guest, too. So Yay! congratulations on those two distinctions of our Thank growing you. audience. So, so for the um, folks in the audience, tell us a bit about uh, yourself and the type of work you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I'll start with the, the doctor bit. Um, I have a PhD in physics, which is actually not the work that I'm doing anymore, but it set me up pretty well for this work because it was a pretty deeply technical background. Uh, as Ryan said, I am a director of software engineering at Capital One. I'm actually in the Center for Machine Learning. Uh, and prior to that, I was the head of data science at a local startup here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I live, called Scoffos. And broadly, what I've done in each of these positions uh, yeah, each of these positions is to build machine learning like data products. So some type of product that is enabled by machine learning. So one of the things that my team has been working on right now at Capital One, and I do have to be a little bit vague just because of, you know, confidentiality, um, as you might imagine, uh, but is building a tool um, to help enable time series forecasting. So in the financial space, time series like predicting what is going to happen based on past historical data in a way that is maybe periodic or very time sensitive is, a, is an important and challenging problem. So building out some tooling to enable that. Uh, an example of this at Scafos is the product that they're currently building is personalized shopping, a more customized shopping experience, which is also has ML embedded. So, so very broadly, uh, I'm trying to build technical solutions that leverage machine learning to solve problems. Awesome. And we'll get the problem solving in a bit, but how did you get from a PhD in, in physics to machine learning uh, and models? Yeah. So it was a little bit um, accidental, actually. I didn't, uh, I got my PhD in 2006. And back then, machine learning was not the hot field it is today. It certainly existed. Uh, for any of your listeners who are familiar with, say, neural networks, that technology has been around for a long time. It's just we didn't have the compute to really leverage it the way that potentially we, we can today. And so after I finished my PhD, I knew I did not want to be a professor that that route just didn't seem right to me. Uh, so I ended up uh, moving to Princeton, New Jersey and working at a consulting firm there called Princeton Consultants. So, so that was a lot of management consulting. And it was also my first introduction to writing software properly, right? In grad school, it was I have this math, I need to translate it to working code and the math has to be right. Like that's priority number one. When you're building software that people are going to use, the considerations are very different. Uh, so that's what I did when I was in Princeton. Um, a lot of client-facing work, a lot of learning how to write software engineering, uh, do software engineering properly, you know, version control, code reviews, all of that stuff. 
Uh, then from there, moved to Toronto where I worked in a neuroimaging lab. So that's where I started writing in Python and doing a lot of statistical analysis. It was kind of like a postdoc, um, like a super postdoc my boss called me once, which was a nice compliment. That was when my kids were really little. So working in an academic lab gave me the, the flexibility, um, less stress. And then when I moved to Charlottesville in 20... 14, I guess it was, that's when I really started getting into data science, machine learning. It felt like a good match for my um, like technical math skills, but at the same time, software engineering and kind of sitting like right on the edge of those. And so I started off at a consultancy here called Elder Research, worked there for a while, went on to lead the team before I made the jump to Scafos and then to Capital One. So it was really, I've had a very technical journey, but it's been a little bit meandering. I, I didn't set out to end up in machine learning, it just sort of happens. That's awesome. And so when you go in, you mentioned problem solving early on, this whole program mm -hmm. is about different approaches yep. and different bring up, walk us through sort of the mirror approach when you get engaged to sort of solve a problem, walk us through kind of how you go about um, doing that. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think I was thinking about this, right? Spoiler alert for the audience. I did get some of the questions in advance to think about that. And I was thinking about the types of problems I started off solving in grad school when I was starting as a software engineer working in the neuroimaging lab, they were very highly technical problems. And now most of the problems I have, since I have a team of people that report to me and do all the technical stuff, are more strategic. And so I was thinking about the similarities and differences between solving those two types of problems. So for technical problems, it's interesting, my approach has really evolved. So. As a physicist, you're used to solving everything from first principles, right? I'm going to derive it. I'm going to think about the physics. I'm going to start writing down all these equations and I'm going to figure it out. And that's very, it's a very valuable way to think about things, but it can also be very time consuming, right? I would do a lot of research and a lot of reading and a lot of digging before I actually started solving anything. And I don't always have the luxury of that time anymore when I, when I do get to solve technical problems. And so now what I tend to do is I try to you know, research and understand, right, but also quickly get to a prototyping stage. So maybe I'm writing a little bit of code to test something out, or I'm exploring some data, right? I kind of want to get into it, this sort of like test and learn and quickly iterate approach. So when it comes to, um, you know, technical problem solving, that that is sort of where I started and where I have gotten to. And we can definitely unpack that a little bit. And then strategically, a lot of it is starting with, are we even asking the right question and, and you need to do that technically at well but as well but certainly in my experience like the technical problems by the time i had gotten to them were more well formulated and now strategic it's almost like there's not one answer there's not always one answer for technical problems either but it, it's even like do i have the right information am i asking the right questions am i talking to the right people so much of my job right now is just connecting with different stakeholders across the center for machine learning and across capital one understanding their needs and then figuring out are we building the right technology to solve them so really um it's it's a very complementary approach, but it's sort of different, I guess, if that makes sense. No, it does. And on the strategic bit, like, how do you go about sort of getting uh, meeting people and pulling in and creating that synthesis and sort of figuring out? You know, I have to talk about there's building the right thing and building the thing right. You need to yes, both, yes, right. And and as you as you're like my career, although I don't have a PhD, uh, and uh, and that I learned early on how to focus on the engineering and, and, and yeah. doing that, and only later realized 
like why are we doing what we're doing and sort of yeah. that lens to it how do you approach that more strategic realm of of aligning stakeholders and figuring out the problems you're going to focus on and or things like um, do you use outcomes in line like how do you get folks essentially in alignment around what you're going to do before you get into sort of the the prototyping and sort of the technical yeah that's a great question and sometimes they it's sort of like a test and learn process here too so you talked about outcomes um one of the things we're working on right now in c4ml is our objectives and key results our okrs for mm -hmm. 2021 so part of it is understanding strategically how do we fit into capital one's overall goals you know our mission to change banking for good and you know how does the center for machine learning fit into that what are our goals and then how does that percolate down so we can align our daily tasks and our daily you know things that we're doing to these objectives and key results so part of it is trying to have that strategic alignment from the top which can be challenging because we're solving hard problems right and so it, it can sometimes be difficult to get anyone not anyone in alignment but to get everyone in alignment not because anyone doesn't want to do that but just because there's there's hard problems. And when you're solving hard problems, you should have a difference of opinion, I think, uh, before you get to a consensus. So I think part of it is understanding that. And then I think one of the things which is challenging, which I've been working on, is bridging the gap between technical practitioners, like people who are using the tools, people who are building the tools, and then the executives who are, who are responsible in some ways for really driving the strategic vision and making sure that there's not a lot of disconnects. And sometimes there are, I've seen this in every organization I saw it when I was consulting, you know, at Scoffos talking to customers and potential customers and here at Capital One, just because you're thinking in different planes, like I think of it as going up and down a ladder. Like when I'm highly technical and I'm in the code and I'm solving something, it's a different headspace than when I'm thinking about like, how do I change banking for good? And how does machine learning help enable that? So a lot of what I do is just asking questions trying to connect those dots, trying to just get the right people in the room because there's so many people, you know, Capital One is a huge organization. And so just making sure that you have the right stakeholders at the table and listening, which sounds so obvious, but just like yeah. listening to people and hearing what they have to say and really trying to tease out, this is what they're saying. Am I getting the information I need from them to build the product that, that they're going to use and is going to help them? So. Yeah, and how much of your job satisfaction is that going up and down the ladder a lot? It seems like you really like to go in in in, in low level and do that sort of stuff, probably get your kicks. I mean, I still write some software yeah. on the side, mostly just because I don't get to write my, in my day job. Um, yeah. It, it scratches that itch if you've ever yep. sort of gotten into there. But then it sounds like you, you spend with your role a, a good bit more on the strategy stuff. Yep. How do you manage to balance your time? And do you have a certain way for balancing uh, your time, it's between those two sort of poles. Oh, that's a great question. And I am not, to be totally transparent, always the best at balancing my time. Um, I tend to, because you're right, like it's sort of fun at this point since I'm not so hands-on technical to have a little side project or uh, one thing we have at Capital One in the tech organization, which C4ML is part of, is invest in yourself days. So it's like one Friday a month we get to work on sort of whatever we want, right? And we have a new managing vice president who's really encouraged us to take some time, right? Uh, you know, block four hours a week of a continuous chunk, like for your own learning and growth. And I love that, right? Like, I, I think that is so awesome. Um, but to be honest with you, I, you know, having just started six months ago in a remote environment, right? So much of my time has been getting to know my team, getting to know the other leaders in the organization, other stakeholders. And I think that, 
So even though I don't get to scratch that technical itch, it's actually really satisfying when I can make a decision or I can provide some guidance to unblock people so then they can go get work done. I, I often talk about my job as being someone who gathers and disseminates information so other people can be productive. And so that can also be really satisfying. Um, but, you know, sometimes it does involve like a lot of meetings and a lot of talking. And so it's nice to take a break sometimes and just, you know, go read some technical articles or try to, you know, spin up a Jupyter notebook and write some code just to, to kind of, as you said, scratch that itch. Yeah, I tend to live vicariously through my engineers and a little bit designers these days. Uh, yeah. To a bit your point, it's like, okay, yeah, I can be a little involved, but they get to do a lot of sort of the, the more of the fun work I used to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, talk to us a little bit about, you've been involved in what's now machine learning for a bit, and you've seen it evolve from sort of the mm -hmm. companies you've been involved. And now you're obviously at a large organization who's invested a lot and now for different things. What are some of those sort of projects maybe that you're thinking about applying ML or that would maybe not be second nature um, to some folks. I think a lot of us who work in the recommendation engines and these mm -hmm. sort of things are a very natural kind of fit for ML. Is there anything you can share without divulging details or any ideas you guys are thinking on that aren't necessarily uh, what we would kind of think about traditionally ML, but um, and maybe just not Capital One, you've seen uses for machine learning outside of areas and you think that's gonna be an area we're gonna get into more. In the yeah. Future. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for Capital One, the things that come to top of mind, I'm actually not sure I can necessarily yeah, talk about. But um, I did one thing I will touch on is I did talk about the time series forecasting and doing that, which can be both classical, you know, traditional statistics or more machine learning approaches, right? They're, they're very complementary. They both they both work. Um, I can say that one thing that is um, not sort of ubiquitous everywhere, but it's definitely like uh, in, you can use it in a lot of situations is natural language processing. So using some kind of, you know, techniques there to, to analyze, you know, transcripts or to analyze, um, you know, internet forums, right? There's, you know, there's language everywhere, right? And there's all kinds of, of rich information there that you can use machine learning for. So that, I don't know if that's counterintuitive to people, you know, Capital One, it's a financial organization, it's a tech organization, but we are doing some some natural language processing there um, to, to unpack some things. Um, I can talk about uh, one thing that I did uh, at Elder Research, which is where I was previous to Scaphos, is uh, we worked for SolidWorks, which is something I can divulge um, since we, we were able to publicly talk about that engagement. And one of the first projects I worked on was on trying to understand user personas leveraging software, like how people actually use the software. So I think it's very common in marketing, right? You want to create user segments based on geographic location or maybe education level or industry or all of these other metrics. And so SolidWorks, they, they came to us and said, we want to do this based on how people are using the tool. Can we somehow analyze like the command sequences and the way that they're using the tool to identify some user segments that otherwise would not be obvious to us? And I thought that was a really fascinating, it was one of the first projects I worked on there. And I thought it was really fascinating. And I think in general, leveraging machine learning to understand how are people using these tools? And this is happening all the time, right? Like there's an industry of different products that people are using to, to analyze um, how people use apps or how people use software. But I think that that's really interesting because we, one of the powerful things about machine learning is that we as human beings are often 
blind to ourselves and we don't like we have certain intentions that we're not always aware of. And so for me, thinking about how those intentions kind of might manifest themselves and the software we're using and that we can pull that out, I think is is really fascinating. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, yeah. but that, that was sort of one thing that comes to mind. No, it is. And in fact, I teach design thinking and we talk a lot about, you know, people and, and a bit personas. And you're right. A lot of the, the UI UX tends to think about, you know, whether it used to be the personas 1.0, I call them, were things like yeah. demographic information, and yeah. where they live and those. And then we've evolved since then. But it is an interesting idea of saying, what are people actually doing it and backing into uh, those? Because one of the things that I teach is like, there's what people say and what people do. Yeah. yeah. Right? right. And so there's yeah. some, some bias there. And so at least by going after this approach, you're grabbing what they did, not sort mm-hmm. of um, who they are. So. Yeah. And I do think that design thinking, like we use this, we leverage as a capital one for sure. Like, I think that is so valuable and it's such a good way to frame the problem. And then on the other side, you can sort of tackle it from, you know, machine learning or using things that maybe wouldn't come out and the design thinking. And so I think that sort of is my belief about machine learning. Generally, it can give you tons of really insightful and surprising information but it can it's best when used in context with the normal things we human beings do you know talking to each other and the the design thinking right like the two approaches are very complementary it's not machine learning is going to take over the world it's machine learning in concert with other things are going to enable us to make better decisions or what have you it's funny because when i hear about machine learning it's either it's going to take over the world or it's going to solve all of our problems and you know yeah and and rarely in technology are these these uh silver bullets but uh it is interesting to see how much it has evolved and running the cloud practice here once sort of ubiquitous technology and storage and and computing became available that is what it seems like is a bit of unlocked to your point on networks a lot of what we knew could possibly be done it's really that sort of unlimited sort of space and size. It sounds like is unleashed a lot of these real capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. And even, um, and I don't know what, what the current status is. So I might be speaking out of turn, but even, you know, a couple of years ago when we were at Scafo, sometimes prototyping things, we would use Google Colab. So I just like a random person could just spin up and have access to like a GPU or a TPU and all of the work that, you know, Google and Facebook and and other companies have done with neural networks, right? I don't have to build this from scratch. I can just download, you know, ResNet and use all of these features to build things, right? So that not only do we have more compute, but because of all the work that people have been doing, the starting line is different, right? I can get further faster because of all of this tooling. Or I was thinking the other day, you know, one of the things that you have to do in machine learning when you're building a model is you have a whole bunch of data and you do what's called a train test split, right? So here's what I'm going to train the model on. And here's data that the model hasn't seen. So I can can run it through and see how it does. And now, you know, you just call a scikit-learn function. You know, you used to, you used to have to write this yourself and now you call scikit-learn or cross-validation or if you want to do what's called you know one hot encoding right so you can you can handle your categorical variables all of these things are just all these functions to do it and so you can do things so much faster with all the compute because of all this work and all of these libraries that are available to us it's so funny the parallels in uh software and the, yeah the things that we used to spend lots and lots of time and, and would sort of custom curate and now it's like there's one library and it just does it all it's it just does it, yeah. heartening and and uh, sometimes demotivating for though i remember back in the day when you know i used to be able to do this um, yeah 
<laughs> so talk to me about prototyping for machine learning models. I'm very familiar with the prototyping, especially around things like uh, UIs and those. But talk mm -hmm. to me, like, what does a prototype look like? for machine learning model? That's a great question. So there's a model and then there's a product. So I'll, okay. uh, that the model might be embedded in. So I'll give you two, two examples. So yeah. one is just the modeling process, right? So the first thing I need to do is data exploration. And depending on what you're doing, this can take a really long time. But if I'm just, if I'm just trying to prototype something, right, I would read in the data, get a handle on it, understand what I'm working with, right? You know, do my train test split. And then I would, I would figure out what am I trying to predict? And then I would do sort of an, you know, an iterative modeling process to see, can I predict this thing with any accuracy? Just, just to get a handle on what does my end-to-end -end pipeline look like? So if I want to embed it in a product, I'll give an example of at Scafos before we came to our current I say we, even though I'm not there anymore, uh, the current where we live, where the company has landed currently on this personalized shopping, we were trying to build out a platform and tooling to enable mobile app developers to more easily embed machine learning models into their apps. And so in that situation, you, in some sense, the model, it's not the least important part because you have to get it right. Um, but the more important thing is the end to end, right? Like, can I take this model, insert it into the, the app and have the app do something that makes sense? So the example I'll give is, uh, is a prototype we built called the Boot Finder, which actually came out of a hackathon we did. This was my idea because so I'm sitting in my closet. This is actually fortuitous, right? I love boots. I have so many boots. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great have an app where I can take a picture of somebody's boots and like find out, you know, what, what they are, right? Like, or where can I get them, right? Like a similar pair of boots. So we built this in a hackathon. And so in this case, like I built, you know, I, I just described this process of, you know, ingesting some data, exploring it, building a model. In this case, it was a neural network because I was trying to do an image similarity model, but then I had to get it into the app. So I was working with a team of, you know, a, a designer and an, and an app developer. So in that case, it was like, can I take this model and create an object out of it? And can I put it in like CoreML, for example, is what, what the, the standard for Apple. Can I get this into the app? And can I, can I make sure that it works, right? So when I take the picture, the model actually like identifies the boot as something. So in that case, even if the model is garbage, like I always tell people it's better to go end to end first, because then once you know you have a format that fits into the app and it's doing what you need it to do, then you can go back and say, okay, I'm going to include more data. I'm going to you know, tweak this model to make it even better. And so that's, that's sort of how, like when I think about prototyping, you know, to your question about how do you prototype and get to something quickly, there's the modeling aspect that, but then there's also the like, what am I going to actually do with this, this model object? Cause it's one thing to just run it in a Jupyter notebook or run it on your desktop and your Python code spits out an answer. But then it's quite another thing to say, okay, I want to have this in an app and someone's going to use it and it's going to give them the information that they need. Does that make sense? Oh, That's completely. I mean, okay. we have terms like what they're called spike or thin stripe of yeah. functionality, where essentially it's get that full thing working kind of end to end and then mm -hmm. iterate over time, but first focus on kind of end to end work out the integration the yep. use cases and stuff too. So yep. no, yep. very similar. So let me ask you in your sort of career and journey, who have been some of the influences um, along the way? Oh man, you know, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. Um, and so I'll give some answers, some of which might surprise you because they're not technical. Um, so yeah. one is, uh, so I mentioned I have a PhD in physics and 
in some sense where that came from, which really the, the PhD, even though I'm not doing physics anymore, just the ability to like hack through all of this complex math and to think about a problem from first principles and not get deterred when things are hard, like that has really served me well in my career, even though I'm not doing any physics anymore at all. But where that came from was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. So this is now like a really long time ago. I went to a summer program. I grew up in New Hampshire. And there's a, a private school there called St. Paul's School. And I did not go to St. Paul's. I went to public school. But every summer they had a program for public school students to go and stay at St. Paul's and learn something. You take one subject. And so I took physics. And so for most of it, it was, um, you know, standard like F equals MA, Newton's laws or some fluid dynamics. But the very last week of the program, we come into class and the teacher, his name was Robert Bradley, he had written all of these equations on the board. And they were some of the equations of like, you know, Schrodinger's wave equa equation, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, all of these like sort of canonical equations in quantum physics. And I was like, what is this? Like, I need to know what this is. And, and none of us had taken calculus yet, you know, so we, we didn't know. But the way he framed the problems of quantum physics and the way he sort of like hooked me is I was like, I need to know what this is. Like, I need to go major in physics because I need to know what this is. And so I did. And interestingly, you don't even usually take quantum mechanics until your third year of college or junior year because you have to get through all the prerequisites and all of the mathematics. And I was just very stubborn. I'm like, I need to know what this is. And I loved it. Like when I finally got into it, I just, I thought it was the most fascinating thing ever. Um, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to go get, get a PhD in this, right? Like I want to, I want to learn more. It seems really hard. I want to do this hard thing. And so, um, you know, I, I, he probably doesn't know that that sort of moment or that week had such a profound impact on the trajectory of my life. And I didn't know it at the time either. Right. But yeah. when you, when you look back, um, so he's one person. Um, another person uh, who really had uh, an impact on me was when I was at Princeton Consultants, I worked with a software engineer named J.R. Scally. He was just, he was a brilliant software engineer, but he also had this rare ability to be able to articulate concepts really clearly. So I was new to the world of relational databases and object-oriented programming and C++, right? Like I was a self-taught physicist, which you end up writing kind of a lot of bad code sometimes. I think that's different now. But back when I did it, right, like, I mean, I wasn't using version control, it was a mess. And he really um, just such an excellent teacher, just a kind person. And the way he thought about software engineering and just the way that he was so generous with his time and just engaging not just with me, but with everybody else, right, that really, um, that left an impact on me, right. And, and I think, um, you know, just a smart, genuine, like very good software engineer. Um, and another person who I'll say who's more recently had a pretty profound um, impact on my thinking is not anyone technical. It's a woman named Glennon Doyle. Um, she's actually married to soccer star Abby Wambach. Um, and she wrote a book recently called Untamed. And it's just about being like kind of throwing away like society's perceptions of what should and shouldn't be and just being really authentic to yourself even you know the truth can kind of be messy and uncomfortable sometimes but just being like very authentic and she has a way of just articulating like owning her own mistakes but just being so comfortable in her own skin and the way she just like reaches out to people and so that book um particularly in the pandemic it just came I want to say it came out about a year ago and I read it yeah. early in the pandemic and she's just she's just a phenomenal writer so she she influences me so those are three um, awesome. that I can sort of think of off the top of my head.
Awesome. And out of curiosity, are you more of an introvert or an extrovert by, by, by nature? Uh, um, what would you guess based on this chit chat we're having? Um, the sweatshirt says extrovert. Um, yeah. But, but <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I'm actually very extroverted. I'm very comfortable around people. But I will say that I do need time to recharge. Like, I definitely hit a limit or particularly before the pandemic when we could go out to like parties and go hang out with people. I, I have a great time and then I hit a wall and then it's like, a, it's like a discontinuity. Right. And then it's yeah. like, I need to go home like right now. Cause I'm just, I'm like <laughs> tapped um, out. Yeah. So I'm definitely um, very extroverted. Although I have come to believe that most of us are some combination of introvert and extrovert, right. We're ambiverts, I guess, or there's like a spectrum, but I'm definitely more on the extroverted side of the spectrum for sure. Well, it's interesting because a lot of uh, characteristically engineers, especially um, ones that hit more of the data ML, tend to be on on the opposite side, mm -hmm. more, of the, more of the introverted, and so a bit out of the norm. But yeah, cool. yeah, I think that's true. But I think it also helps me, uh, particularly in leadership, because that you know I talked earlier about walking up and down yeah. the ladder, and my job requires so much connection and communication. But because I have the experience of doing the deeply technical work. I think it helps me to, to communicate with my team and then disseminate that information to people who are maybe less technical or who are, you know, in different rungs of the ladder. Yeah. Right. And so I think um, you're right. It is more unusual in this like sort of data centric tech field, but I also think that it, it can help me sometimes fill a gap that maybe needs to be filled. No. And, and for me, I, I speak about Carol through my engineers. I, the challenges I face is how can I understand what they're dealing with at an engineering level and frame mm -hmm. it to your mm -hmm. point in such a way that others can get it. And having that deep experience enables that because a lot of times yeah. I see that we have really, I see at our clients and us, we have really smart engineers, but it is a challenge and not everybody has that skill mm -hmm. to be able to explain things. And so in sort of what I call layman's terms, like I can sit down, yeah. my, my, one of my goals is to always try to be able to explain anything really complicated in, in pretty simple language. And then if you get yeah. that, then let's get deeper. Yeah. But how, how do you not, you know, especially in complex areas like software machine learning, how do you not talk down to somebody, but talk to them at the level and make them feel comfortable and then figure out if you're going to go deeper. And it's sort of a lifelong uh, yeah. it's hard to do. Um, yeah. And I think it's also just acknowledging, right, of course, that I don't know everything. Right. And, you know, I spoke earlier about JR, who is that software engineer. He so I came in with a Ph.D. and he had a bachelor's degree, yet he was brilliant, you know, and had so many skills I didn't have. And so I think that knowing like knowing that everyone has something to bring to the table and you're only operating with a subset of information. And that everyone's operating with a different subset of information. And so I think just letting people know that you value what they're about to say. And I mentioned earlier, the listening, really listening, making sure people feel heard. And I think I'm, I try to be very just careful and thoughtful about doing this because, you know, I, you know, I used to be introduced all the time. This is Dr. Miriam Friedel. She has a PhD in physics and people immediately are like, Oh no. Right. Like what? Yeah. yeah. Even though like, I'm just, you know, I'm just like everybody else. <laughs> like I have my faults. I know things. I don't know things. And so just it, because it's really true, everyone has something to bring to the table. And so making sure that you can find those connections and that people feel heard and comfortable and can voice their opinions or voice their dissent and, 
um, you know, everyone has a seat at the table. And then eventually you have to come to a decision and maybe not everyone will like your decision, but at least everyone felt heard and listened to. But yeah, it's a skill that I'm constantly, to your point, the lifelong skill, it's something I'm constantly honing and revising. Yeah. Tech is easy. People are hard. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> basically is it is whenever somebody thinks that, and a lot of stuff I work on my team is complicated, but people yeah. often surpass yeah. that. So, uh, yep. Hey, so, um, what topics are top of mind for you these days? So, so what do you, you know, what are you studying? You shared some influences. What are some of the, maybe related to machine learning or what are some of the things, topics, top of mind, um, that you're kind of focused on these days? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, the topic that is top of mind for me most is is really thinking about issues of social justice. Um, I recently read the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram uh, wow. Kendi, which was, he's like a phenomenal scholar. Like it's an excellent, the way he unpacks sort of societal racism, but also interweaves it with his own personal experiences is really incredible. So that I think has been top of mind for me lately um when it comes to machine learning i think uh which is obviously less important i think than than social justice but we have room in our heads for for many things um i think when it comes to machine learning one is just understanding more some of the specific techniques and problems that arise in the financial space so even though I've been doing technical things for a long time in machine learning for a good six years now. I'm new to the financial space. And so even though, you know, I do have an understanding of time series forecasting and natural language processing and some of the other techniques we're using, you know, fraud modeling is also very important for a lot of businesses, right? You want to catch people before they're going to defraud you. Um, just really digging deeper into those techniques so I can better understand and better guide my teams. Um, and I think also another technical thing I'm starting to get into is Kubernetes. So data scientists, you know, typically have not, you don't want them to have to deal too much with the infrastructure, but now since I'm getting into needing to understand this infrastructure and build things on it. So, so understanding more different architectural paradigms. And then I would say the last thing is, um, I also spend a lot of time thinking about like child development or reading books, you know, cause I have, my daughters now are 10 yeah. and 12. And so we're starting to get into the tween and teen years. And so thinking about how do I best support them, you know, through this pandemic as they grow into their own individuals, you know, we're kind of all trapped in this house together. Um, so that's, that's something like it's, it's a real mix of technical things, but then also more sort of societal things as well, I would say. That is a great list. And uh, we both share, we have kids at home that are going through the school and it's a, it's a full-time job. I mean, I left here to come record this at our office, but yeah, two kids and one's virtual and we're having to make decisions about who goes when and where and it's mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Yeah. Decisions you have to make for your kids that, you know, a year ago, I was talking to my wife it was almost a year ago. We started hearing this thing yeah. um, coming out and how much we're profound impact it's had on us all. Yeah, it's definitely challenging. And I will say I feel very grateful, right? My um, my kid's dad and I were not together, but he and I are very much on the same page about all this stuff. We have very open communication, right? We're in a good schedule. And so even though I'm sort of home by myself with them, which is both good and bad, like I also feel very lucky to have a co-parent who I'm on the same page with about all this stuff because it's really hard. Like it's just, yeah. there's no, no matter what situation you're in or what, you know, and, and I'm very lucky, right? Like I can sit here in my closet and do this interview. I can work from home, right? Like I can pay the mortgage, but it's, it's even within that, there's still so much challenge. And so it's definitely um, a lot of hard decisions. And I feel pretty grateful that I have a, a co-parent that, that can help, you know, we can work together. Yeah. That is important. I can't imagine yeah. what happened. 
So, well, let me yeah. ask you one last question. I would like, what, okay. what are you listening to? What uh, am I listening to? Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, like probably many Americans, I have a number of different streaming services on my TV, including Disney Plus. Um, and July 3rd, like Hamilton became available uh, to all of us to watch. And I think that is such a brilliant musical. So I had listened to some of the soundtrack before, but we have been listening to that a lot lately in my home. I think uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, it was just such a brilliant production and what what he did you know reading a biography of hamilton and then he's like i know i'm gonna write a rap musical about the first treasury secretary it sounds bananas and he just did such an incredible job with it and of course it intersects into all of the you know conversations we're having about social justice and and race and so uh that is one thing that has been on pretty heavy rotation in my household. Um, and then i also one thing i do since all of my echoes are connected i'll go back through my kids listening history and see what they're listening to just to get a sense of like what interests them but also like are they listening to anything that we need to have a conversation about um so there's a lot of ariana grande in there my youngest okay. really loves her um my oldest actually is into various other musicals so i'll find like a lot of a lot of soundtracks in there sometimes and then just i think kind of like standard pop music i think is often on rotation in my house but i would say the biggest addition in the last six months has been the hamilton soundtrack all right i'll have to check it out it's i mean so good. Uh, what i've been doing with my kids is we all we have a spotify account and they'll put likes on stuff they're listening to and it shows up on my like list yeah. when i'm playing I'm like who's this song ah you know so uh, yeah. no it, it is it's interesting as your kids get from younger to now my kids have an opinion on music you know when they're younger mm -hmm. i'd kind of play and they'd be whatever and now they have an opinion on what they want to listen to and play and it is a way as a parent i, I try to stay connected um, with it and try to keep an yep. open mind yeah um, yep. who was it listening to so yeah yeah okay. so no it's definitely yeah it's definitely um it's very interesting to see and it has opened up some conversations which is really nice absolutely well, Miriam, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program wearing your best sweatshirt. Yeah. Um, you, you, you can muster. That thing is awesome, by the way. Thank We're gonna you. Have to, yeah, see, we have to take a picture of that and figure out the the, the machine learning uh, algorithm so we can send all of our followers or um, yeah. find them for themselves. Yeah, well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time, uh, and I really appreciate, appreciate the invite. Awesome. All right, take care. See you, Miriam. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.